Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I would like to see New Zealand engage and and be more outward looking to really sort of confront our um, tendency to look inward. From a New Zealand perspective, Australia is its most important ally, most enduring relationship. Um, The term natural allies is used um, frequently. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Jennifer Parker, Director of Defence Policy at the National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to the elders past and present. Today, it's a pleasure to be joined by Anna Poles and Susanna Jessup. Anna is a Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand, and is a prolific writer and commentator on geopolitics and security in the Pacific Island region. Susanna is a Director of Research and Engagement at the Asian New Zealand Foundation and has a broad background in international affairs and has held numerous posts, including as New Zealand's Deputy High Commissioner to India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh and Vanuatu. Welcome, Anna and Susanna. Hello. Thanks, Jen. Lovely to join you. Today on the National Security Podcast, we'll be exploring New Zealand's approach to national security strategy. In a year of global strategic uncertainty with conflicts in Europe and the Middle East and heightened tensions in the South China Sea, New Zealand released their first national security strategy in August this year. Joining a club of a number of countries that have released or updated national security strategies in the last 12 months, including Germany, the US, Japan, and a number of Pacific Island countries. Susanna, if you don't mind, given uh, we have a lot to cover, we might delve into it. And I guess if you wouldn't mind talking to us about why did New Zealand in 2023 decide to release their first national security strategy? Yeah, thanks, Jen. Lovely to be here. I I think there are four factors at play here. Um, The first is that heightened risk environment that you've just captured, where competition and instability are becoming the running norms after more than 70-odd years of relative peace and prosperity. So we're not only dealing um, with the threat of conflict, but also threats that are impervious to geographic borders, such as cyber and climate. So I think that's one reason, it's just that threat environment. And the second is our need to engage publicly on defence and security matters, um, given the growing and and complex interface between uh, political spheres and economic, security, society, technology, and so on. Um, Otherwise, there's uh, a known risk that what happens in one quarter can can catch out the other. 
Uh, third and related to this, I think, is the need to really break down government silos as best we can so that there's greater coordination. Um, and some of this work was prompted by the Christchurch terror attack and that sense that not all parts of our system had been listening to each other. Um, and finally, I think the national security strategy responds to a need in New Zealand to build greater public support uh, for security as a matter necessitating government expenditure. Um, you have to build a clear threat assessment in order to do that. Um, New Zealand has been running, um, the Asian New Zealand Foundation rather, has been running a perception survey for the last 26 years. And in that survey, we asked about the importance of New Zealand having a modern defence force able to operate effectively internationally. Um, and 36% of the New Zealand public said that it's very important that New Zealand have a capable uh, defence force. But overall, 90% said it's, said it's important. Um, so I think it's a matter of really increasing that sense of critical support. You know, if we're going to be able to meaningfully contribute to regional security, uh, that's got to be a core part, is starting to socialise uh, the need and, and importance of national security. Uh, thanks so much for that, Susanna. Uh, Anna, I might turn to you in terms of your thoughts on what prompted New Zealand to release its first, well, its inaugural national security strategy. So thanks, thanks, Jen. Uh, this strategy came about uh, for for several reasons. Firstly, it's worth noting that in the Pacific Islands Forum Boy Declaration on Regional Security, which was adopted in 2018 by forum member countries, which includes New Zealand and Australia, of course, the Boy Declaration committed its member countries to developing national security strategies. And so that was one driver for New Zealand to do so. And then, of course, it came off the back of the 2019 Christchurch terror attack and the commission of inquiry into that. And this was one of the, the recommendations. But it also reflected a shift uh, within government about the way that the strategic environment was viewed and certainly at the release of the of the national security strategy the then uh, minister for defense andrew little made the comment that new zealand uh, that we no longer live in a benign strategic environment which was a reference to a statement made by helen clark uh, during when she was prime minister that it was a strategic environment so it reflected that shift and and the, the national security strategy was released as part of a stable of documents uh, released this year, which included the, the national security strategy, the defence policy strategy statement, uh, the future force design uh, s- statement, and also a intelligence assessment, and or as, as well as a strategic assessment by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I think there's a challenge that also uh, resonates in Australia at the moment. And, you know, I hark back to our defence strategic review uh, in April this year. Unfortunately, we we weren't yet to have a national security strategy, but there are those that still hope. Uh, And I think an element of that too was trying to uh, make sure that the Australian public understood uh, what is changing in the world and what that means in terms of the threat to Australia's interests. Um, in the New Zealand National Security Strategy, what, what did it talk about as New Zealand's greatest challenges? 
So the national security strategy really sought to shape the way in which uh New Zealand was thinking about its strategic environment and it addresses a range of concerns uh, with respect, strategic concerns uh, with respect to uh, from climate change to terrorism to cyber attacks to transnational crime, um, misinformation, uh, foreign interference, uh, for instance. And importantly, a lot of it, uh, one of the key drivers of it were, was you know, concerns with respect to, to stru- China's ambitions and activism uh, in the region, uh, in the Pacific, um, and also in New Zealand as well. And those, th- this led to a, a fairly strong statement uh, in the national security strategy. Uh, the strategy identifies uh, 12 national security issues. Uh, which are seen as as you know attempts uh, to subvert New Zealand democracy, um, and there is that clear emphasis throughout the strategy, and actually throughout all the strategies and assessments that have been released this year about geostrategic competition and the implications for New Zealand and the threats to the rules based international system. Susanna, your thoughts? It identifies a, a number of challenges, but that are. Um, from technology, uh, uh, relationships, uh, trade, environmental, space, Antarctica. Um, But I think its overall purpose is to try and draw a link between that wide set of challenges and draw our system together so that we are having that conversation and so that various parts of the New Zealand system are talking to each other Um, But certainly um, uh, New Zealand's relationship with China uh, is mentioned in the strategy as one relationship and one dynamic more broadly internationally that is requiring um, a a careful and considered response. In fact, um, you know, when I contrasted New Zealand's national security strategy with Australia's Defence Strategic Review, um, there is quite a difference in the language in, in terms of how that relationship with China is, is discussed. But I was surprised in New Zealand's national security strategy how forward it was in some elements about talking about some of China's coercive behaviour and some of their actions that, that have undermined aspects of international law, specifically the UN Convention on Law of the Sea. What do you think has prompted that change? Because only a number of years ago, I guess one of the concerns in Australia was that there was a very different view between the two countries in terms of how China was viewed and how some of their behaviour was viewed. And and certainly during the period of time that Australia was experiencing, and as it continues to do so, um, economic coercion from China. What what has prompted that change in thinking and and that uh, increasingly clear articulation in the national security strategy about the concerns regarding some of China's behaviour? I think it's been a a mix of factors, Jen. I think there's been public perception has in part informed or or emboldened maybe even the government to be more specific about the concerns it sees. Um, 
you know, in, in our survey, China has moved from being considered a friend to, in the last couple of years, being considered a threat. So in our last survey, 37% of the New Zealand public saw China as a threat and 30 as a friend. Um, and I think there's a sense of, you know, unless we are very specific about the risks and the threats we see, um, we have a risk of being, uh, you know, not resilient and effectively uh, without security because we know, for example, when New Zealanders think of Asia, they first and foremost think of China. And as that conversation with China becomes more difficult, as expected or as it's mirrored elsewhere, we don't want broader Asia to be the collateral damage in that discussion. So likewise in the Pacific, I think some of the blanket security concerns that have been expressed over the Pacific um, have drawn a lot of kickback uh, because um, we're talking about 12 plus sovereign states who have their own assessment of, of their security needs and interests. So um, the times call for us to be really specific about what it is we're concerned about and how that impacts our national interest and our security and what we need to do in response. And I might turn to you just to drill into a little bit more about what the national security strategy says about the Pacific, uh, New Zealand's place in the Pacific and concerns about competition in the Pacific. Okay, so obviously the Pacific uh, was was going to be a central uh, aspect of of the strategy, uh, not least because of New Zealand's uh, foreign policy sort of recalibration to the Pacific from 2018 onwards, uh, with the Pacific Reset and then the Pacific Resilience Framework under the, the the last government. And what we saw with the strategy was very much a an ongoing concern. Uh, that instability, that insecurity in the Pacific was a threat to New Zealand's own, own, own national security. And the way in which the Pacific uh, is talked about in, in the strategy uh, very much reflects that. For, for instance, the strategy talks about uh, interests uh, protecting New Zealand from threats that would do us harm, uh, which need you know safeguarding from, and a peaceful and and resilient Pacific is is listed as as part of that. And Pacific resilience and security is listed as one of those those core national security interests uh, for for New Zealand. Um, and and this very much uh, ties in with those concerns with respect to climate change. Uh, and the a range of issues uh, that security challenges and issues in the Pacific, ranging from external interference and coercion through to cyber uh, security uh, and transnational crime. Um, and it's like uh, similar to many other many other um, government assessments. It is, it's framed in terms of shared challenges. So, a peace and stable Pacific is 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 a um, primary national security interest for New Zealand because of the the direct the implications of that. It's also uh, it also um, builds on well, rather the 
the national security strategy provides a umbrella for the Pacific Resilience Strategy uh, that was uh, launched under the second Labour government under then Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta. Um, and, and obviously any policy policies or, or rebranding of, of New Zealand's Pacific policy under the, the new government uh, will also sit under that, that national security strategy as well. The other element to it too was the importance of working with partners in the Pacific, Australia obviously being uh, New Zealand's key partner in the in the Pacific, but also though that wider group of partners such as the United States, France, the UK uh, and so on. So, Anna, you talked on the Pacific Resilience Strategy and, Susanna, you mentioned before about how China's behaviour and economic coercion of Australia had influenced um, some of the wording and some of the um, thinking behind the national security strategy. Anna, I just want to pick your brain on the Pacific. Do you think that um, China's actions in the Pacific have impacted the New Zealand national security strategy? And what is the general view there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, There is... In 2022, when Solomon Islands and China signed uh, the security agreement, uh, that was seen as a sort of significant uh, shake-up um, in in the region, and you know, deep concerns at the time, uh, ongoing concerns that China was seeking to establish uh, effectively an alternative security architecture in the Pacific, and those those concerns remain remain today. Uh, as well as concerns about uh, the link of China linking, for instance, economic and security cooperation, which we've seen in a number of agreements, bilateral agreements between China and Pacific countries, uh, concerns about economic coercion, uh, including uh, coercion uh, throughout the COVID-19 uh, period, uh, as, and and also, you know, concerns with respect to um, policing uh, presence and uh, potential presence missions, for instance, such as we see in in Solomon Islands, as and and other concerns too. Uh, in addition to that, in the maritime domain and so forth, so that obviously did influence uh, the thinking behind the national security strategy and. But but that's also been you know, long built on lots of long-standing concerns about disruptions to the regional order, uh, about undermining regionalism, um, and and also really seeking to define what New Zealand's role and position is within within the region and coming out strongly on those disruptors. I mean, back in 2018, New Zealand, the Ministry of Defence released a strategic defence and policy statement, which clearly stated that strategic competition and climate change were the two most significant disruptors uh, in the Pacific and also the nexus between the two as well. Uh, and then similarly, the climate assessment uh, was was released just shortly after that. And the Ministry of Defence uh, signalled in that climate assessment concerns that China uh, could potentially use climate vulnerability to further its influence and presence in the Pacific. And so this, the national security strategy comes off the back of uh, a number of documents and sort of a clear Evolution of, of thought 
uh, since 2018 onwards about China as a disruptor in the Pacific, in the security space. And so I, I, I'm interested, I think, you know, sitting sitting in Australia, it's often easy to think that the general view in Australia is similar to the general view in New Zealand. We have a lot of similarities. We have a very historical relationship. Uh, New Zealand is still mentioned in the Australian constitution. Um, but how does the average New Zealander, or what is the public sentiment uh, about the threat? You mentioned the the increase in viewing China as a, as a potential adversary. Do you think the average New Zealander understands the need for the national security strategy or do you think there are some challenges there in terms of educating the public about the whole spectrum of threats? And, you know, the national security strategy talks about a series of them, you know, um, disinformation, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a key one in terms of public education and it talks about foreign interference and espionage. Do you think your average New Zealand citizen is alive to those threats or do you think there is a, a conversation there about educating them? I think it's patchy and it really depends on who you're talking to. Um, islands tend to lock inward anyway um, and we have over the last um, few years um, had quite a period of int- introspection. Um, we've looked a lot at who we are, uh, what we represent, um, where we sit in the world, being part of the South Pacific. And COVID with closed borders, I think, really enhanced that sense of isolation. And New Zealand already, for New Zealand, an existential crisis is having trade cut off, Uh, not that sense of immediate threat perception that, say, Australia has with its geography. Um, If you talk to the private sector, uh, particularly those major exporters, they are very alert to the risks that come with uh, trading with China. Um, They watched what happened to Australia with trade coercion and were taking notes. Um, uh, Those in the security sector are very alert to other risks that um, are being posed, um, the risk of climate change and so on. So, but I don't think there is a broad public awareness. The New Zealand public expect the New Zealand government to manage security and foreign affairs more broadly and to do so in a way that protects New Zealand's interests. But it's not front and centre and it's not top of mind for Kiwis. Um, domestic issues become come far out ahead there. And you really saw that. I think the foreign affairs portfolio um, fell to 16th uh, rank under the, the Labour government um, during the recent election. I think defence and security and foreign affairs more broadly was discussed less than 10% of, of discussion during election campaigns. So it's not a like a federal system where defence and security are very much part of the election discussion with the Australian public. Um, here it needs to be a dedicated uh, discussion uh, and often at leader level to talk to the New Zealand public, particularly where there are integrated or overlapping risks. And you talk about the New Zealand public's expectation that the government will manage uh, foreign affairs and and security. Um, I note since the uh, inaugural national security strategy was released in August, um, there has been an election and a change of government in New Zealand. What do you think that will mean for the national security strategy? Do you think that there might be a different view on New Zealand's security or do you think it might be quite consistent? 
I think, I mean, in some jurisdictions you see strategies being tossed out with a change of government and then uh, new strategies coming in that may or may not bear any resemblance to their predecessors just as a matter of um, creating a different brand with the new political administration. Here, I don't think we will see that. I think there was a lot of work with the national security strategy and with MFATS, uh, also with its assessment, uh, that was largely bipartisan, that this is a piece of work that addresses core New Zealand interests across sectors and across um, political um, spectrum. We may see, it's probably the question mark is the degree to which we may we may see New Zealand lean in to say AUKUS Pillar 2, um, the degree to which we articulate who we see as our core partners, the degree to which we articulate um, the importance of our place in and off the Pacific um, as compared to say in and off the Indo-Pacific. Um, so I think we'll see those differences in um, expression, but I don't think the fundamentals of the strategy will change. But I did note, rereading it, that it is a still a strategy, and much, no matter which government is in place in New Zealand, will be will come down to their leadership of it and the degree to which they are driving resource decisions, um, personnel decisions to ensure it's delivered on. Uh, because that's probably been the recurrent problem with strategies such as this, although, you know, we haven't released um, many such strategies, um, is that they remain a sort of bellwether of where we need to go, but not necessarily what we're doing. And that's going to be the the really critical question here is how much do we really uh, press in and deliver? Anna, your thoughts? Well, the the... The thinking certainly has been that this uh, is bipartisan. You know, they're, they're at the time when when the national security strategy and the other documents were released this year. You know, there was there was an eye to the fact that we were heading into an election, uh, and whether or not there that the incoming government, if it differed uh, from the incumbent, uh, whether or not they would share the same uh, views. And there have been some some you know, clear statements that. There is bipartisan agreement about the security challenges that New Zealand faces. The fact that that it is no longer a benign strategic environment, as as Minister Little referred to at the time of the launch, and so what will be particularly interesting uh, for those of us here in New Zealand, but also for partners and 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 allies such as Australia, is where those differences lie. So there's. You know, there are there are questions about whether or not a national-led coalition government will be uh, as firm uh, on China, for instance, as we were seeing increasingly under Ardern's government, under the Labour government. Uh, some very clear, strong statements on on China, uh, particularly in the, under in the second Ardern government, and whether or not the new the the incoming government will be. As firm on that, given that the national uh, national governments have often been more trade, economic focused, uh, and also given the fact that the last time they were in government was eight years ago, uh, and the strategic environment has changed since then, and I would be wondering uh, whether or not they are. Obviously, there would be you know across. Um, 
these these concerns uh, and certainly um, when in opposition as well. But the world has changed from what it was eight years ago and it's a different place in which uh, the, New Ze- a, the New Zealand government will find itself uh, and the challenges for balancing its economic relationship with China, with its security partnerships, uh, is increasingly challenging and those you know, the types of sort of strategic choices that New Zealand is increasingly going to have to make will become more and more acute under the during the, during the time that this new government will be in term in office. And I think um, you know there are some commonalities with Australia there. There has been much debate internally in Australia regarding our defence strategic review released earlier this year, and I was lucky enough to co-author a publication about the defence budget, asking the question about whether the defence strategic review was being backed up by funding. Um, and, and certainly the answer to that is not in the near term um, from 27-28. So that is always the test of a strategy in terms of whether there is follow-through in terms of the leadership uh, and the funding. Turning now back to the question about um, New Zealand's relationship with China, you mentioned that uh, in the recent polls from your organisation, 36%, I think you said, of the New Zealand public saw China as a, as a potential adversary or certainly a challenge. And, and one of the, the 12 core national security issues called out the national security strategy is strategic competition and the rules-based international system. How does the New Zealand government and policymakers approach the China challenge? I, I think it's it's been... Uh an evolving approach. Um, Many have wondered whether New Zealand is too muted um, in terms of the way it is looking and engaging on, for example, the challenges that China poses to us um, and whether our vulnerability um, in terms of our primary products exports means that we're disinclined to be have a sort of loud public debate, which, you know, we often look at Australia's sort of more robust public discussions, particularly under the coalition government, where it was very um, loud and public discussion on relations with China. So for New Zealand, that's been much more muted. But I think it's more shades of grey here. It's partly that the New Zealand public is not super engaged, and so the New Zealand government has had the leeway to judge which of those issues it's best to to engage on privately or directly um, with the governments involved or with the Chinese government, uh, which it sees a need to retail publicly and build public understanding and support for, and which it really wants to work with others um, and be in sort of power of a union to address. So it's it's been something that is, uh, I think, evolving over time. Broadly, though, when, I mean, I've talked to to wise Australian heads like the late Ellen um, Gingell and and Richard Maud, um, who have kind of cautioned New Zealand or, or, you know, us in our discussions to say it's not necessarily something that you, New Zealand, can manage. Um, It might be that it's China that decides um, when and if it's going to um, use stick, not carrot. Um, 
And so partly, I think, we have always found Australia prescient in terms of how we develop our policies. So partly, I think, there's also been um, some calibration as we have watched Australia's relationship with China play out in figuring out for ourselves um, which parts we we manage and which parts we, um, you know, uh, the degree to which uh, conversations are public and the degree to which they're, they're quiet. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So on the, on the, on the, the, the China Challenge... Um, you know, previously it's been clear that the New Zealand government and the Australian government differed quite dramatically in their approach. Um, the New Zealand national security strategy comes a little bit closer to some of the wording in our, in the Australian Defence Strategic Review, but, but not exactly the same. Um, do you think the two countries are becoming more aligned in terms of their view of the China challenge, both, both regionally and in the Pacific specifically? I think actually we have to go back again to 2018 with the release of the Strategic Defence Policy Statement, which was where we first saw, you know, clear statements on China. And there was no uh, no accident that that came out of the Ministry of Defence rather than Foreign Affairs. Even then it was seen as something of a proxy kind of white paper. And we saw back in 2018 a firming up of views in Wellington with respect to China and the and the challenge that China was was posing to to New Zealand to the region and and more broadly, um, and so whilst the tone has been different with Australia compared to Australia, the the substance of agreement has has been more in more lockstep than people probably realise. Actually, New Zealand is in a different position. To, to Australia economically, a vastly different position economically, and was has been really trying to hedge that uh, that relationship as much as possible uh, for those economic reasons, and and that has meant that New Zealand at times hasn't been able to come out as strongly as some people may have wanted New Zealand to do so. So I think again, it's a question of tone rather than than substance um, and whether or not what we see under the new government is going to be really, really interesting as well, whether or not we see a continuation of what was what was building under the Labour government, 
the two Labour governments or whether or not we see a shift in, in some way towards a softer line. Susanna, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I think at a very fundamental level, there is no difference. We're both open democracies that believe in global order, you know, are governed by agreed rules and rights. Um, but there are some stylistic differences in fairly big material one, which is just a sheer difference in hard power. Um, and I think stylistically, there's been a sense here in New Zealand that, you know, if we are careful, we can... Um, manage relations and manage those bumps in the road. Um, but that's because we don't have by much by way of hard power and the clout um, that kind of goes with the order that we're seeing today, which is increasingly that might is right, um, where we are increasingly fixated on the role and influence of major powers and major power competition. Um, so we're doing what we can and that most other countries of, of our population size are doing in a sort of hedging um, in the company of friends um, while being, you know, as, as good a worker bee as we can when it comes to reinforcing the rules and building regional architecture. Um, I think we came down very clear and hard on Ukraine. So we're... Um, where it's a clear-cut case of uh, sovereignty being impinged on by another state, then um, New Zealand was um, loud and clear. I think our new government is likely to continue this trend, um, but we may see more of a security and de defence conversation play out, um, which the national security strategy sort of plants the seed for. Um, but this is after some time where we have seen you know, New Zealand really emphasise its Indigenous foreign policy, um, has been very sensitive to the need to account for Pacific voices and perspectives. Um, and so it's, you know, it's it's building from that quite different base. And do you think that the experience of Australia uh, in the last couple of years and its relationship with China. So, you know, obviously um, from 2020 onwards, there's some significant economic coercion, which which is which is ongoing uh, in a number of industries. There was the 14 lists of demands provided by uh, a Chinese diplomat to an Australian journalist in, in 2020, talking about how they would like it. And some of it dealt with how they would like Australia's democracy um, to be undertaken. Do you think that experience of Australia has been present in the minds of New Zealand security makers. Do you think it influenced the New Zealand security strategy? I think certainly so. Um, you know, China's treatment of Australia um, alongside, and, and we've actually looked at this in our research, alongside um, how, for example, China responded to the Hong Kong protests, um, uh, how, say, the treatment of Uyghurs played out publicly, um, concerns around Taiwan and so on. The New Zealand public is taking note of those issues, but certainly for Australia, um, we follow events in Australia very closely, and that definitely corroded China's reputation in New Zealand. Um, but we still see China as an important partner and one that we must engage with, and there's an important trade partner um, but exactly as you said, um, we watched with alarm uh, the coercive activities, um, particularly those infamous, you know, 14 Chinese, Chinese grievances, um, which were, 
you know, absolutely flew in the face of what um, New Zealand would consider reasonable diplomacy. But I think the net effect of all of this is basically to draw Australia and New Zealand closer together and more broadly others who care about um, rules and order. So, um, yes, I think it has informed our thinking, but ultimately, um, you know, how the strategy develops um, and what we invest in will, of course, be sort of New Zealand's own assessment. And, and as, you know, you and I have discussed, it can be surprising how different sometimes those assessments are, that we can't always assume that they're, that they're identical. Oh, absolutely, and I guess on that on that question of assessment, so I, you know, I note the New Zealand security strat- national security strategy talks about the importance of uh, Australia as New Zealand's uh, only ally. Um, talks about the importance of New Zealand's relationships with its close partners, the US, UK, Canada, uh, and and the Five Eyes network, um, the information sharing and intelligence sharing. I'd be interested in your perspective on how. Australia's attempts to achieve strategic e- equilibrium, its its balancing strategy, and its um, increasing engagement in arrangements such as AUKUS and the Quad have been perceived um, in New Zealand, uh, and and how that may or may not impact the relationship between the two countries. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say there are divided opinions. Um, in New Zealand, there's worry about anything nuclear, um, even if it's power, not weapons, um, but but more broadly about militarisation in our region. Um, and this is also borne out in our research, which shows that you know New Zealanders find nuclear weapon states threatening, but we also find big military powers threatening. Um, and this comes from our size and sense of isolation and, and lower threat perceptions overall. But in our latest perception survey, we saw threats like climate change, cyber, um, economic downturns and so on sit at the very top of the list of perceived threats to our vital interests Um, and the risk of military conflict right down the bottom. Um, Whereas I believe in Australia, for example, in the Lowy poll, um, uh, the, the risk posed by the threat of military conflict is in the top four. So, you know, things like AUKUS, put the New Zealand public on edge. Um, and there was also a matter of how it was how it was announced, um, that it arguably deepened fault lines um, and eroded trust levels in the very region that Australia's investment was designed to protect. Um, but AUKUS has promoted, I think, an important discussion um, here in New Zealand around military cooperation and interoperability. Um, and it's an important discussion for us to be having. And I think it will be interesting to see whether New Zealand engages in Pillar 2 um, around the sharing of advanced technologies going forward. Quad um, is less of an issue in New Zealand, partly because it's been less overtly military. It's not on our doorstep and because New Zealand, um, you know, has a very high friend and trust ratings with Australia, but also Japan, I think we've seen it as um, more workable. Um, And I think India's inclusion too um, has softened its profile um, in the way that India has also steered away from military posturing. Um, But both Quad and AUKUS, you know, leadership does matter. 
under Biden, um, New Zealanders have much more comfort with the US and higher trust levels. Um, and if we t- return to a Trump presidency, for example, that might change. I think it's true to say um, under your government and um, the messaging that we're seeing from Prime Minister Albanese and, and Minister Wong, I think a lot of what's being said sits very comfortably with New Zealand. So um, I think we really uh, recognise and understand Australia's attempts to achieve strategic equilibrium and do what it needs to do to ensure its interests and its defence are, are taken care of. But um, in many areas that are like-minded there, but... Um, um, for New Zealand, where defence and security doesn't sit at the top of Kiwis' minds, um, the branding also matters because we have to bring the New Zealand public along with us. And I'll turn to you. I'm interested in your thoughts on how New Zealand has uh, viewed Australia's strategy of increasing that, I guess, web of relationships across the Indo-Pacific region. And we see that manifested in the minilaterals such as the Quad. Uh, We see that reflected in AUKUS. Um, Obviously, you know, we mentioned before that the New Zealand defence strategy talks about the strength and importance of the alliance between New Zealand and Australia. How has Australia's uh, evolution into some of these minilaterals impacted that relationship with New Zealand? Or how is it viewed in New Zealand? Well, I think there's an appreciation, uh, firstly, that for, 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 from a New Zealand perspective, Australia is its most important ally, most enduring relationship. Um, the term natural allies is used um, frequently. Uh, and so there's that, there is a deep, deep relationship which goes beyond simply defence or security uh, and there's an understanding and an appreciation that Australia is capable of uh, entering into a wide range of of relationships and 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 agreements, um, and has particular national security drivers for doing so. Um, and that that doesn't necessarily impact. Australia's relationship with New Zealand, although there, of course, are growing concerns of how does New Zealand, increasingly resource-constrained, resource-strapped, how does New Zealand continue to demonstrate its value to Australia um, as the junior ally in the in the alliance, uh, but how does New Zealand continue to demonstrate its value? How does it manage up the relationship, just as Australia has to manage up the relationship with the United States as well? Um, how does New Zealand de- continue to demonstrate its value in in um, the relationship, not just in the Pacific but also beyond that as well? And so those those are areas, of course, which are very much front of mind for. New Zealand officials who are working on the relationship. Um, and there's a sense, of course, you know, Australia is out there in the world um, and, you know, what is of, you know, often beneficial for Australia uh, is beneficial to New Zealand as well uh, by extension. But there's, there's also a sense too that Australia may come to demand more of New Zealand and how does New Zealand deliver on that? How does it demonstrate, as I said, you know, demonstrate its value to Australia? 
uh, across all different levels and, and spheres of the relationship, but particularly in the defense and security space. And, and that is something which arguably is probably going to get more challenging, uh, rather, uh, in the, in the years to come. And this is very much what's, what is, you know, one of the drivers behind Plan Anzac, uh, with, um, Australia, uh, and that sense of increasing that interoperability with Australia, whilst at the same time New Zealand addresses, you know, the significant attrition issues, uh, that New Zealand Defence Force are facing. Um, and how can Australia and New Zealand work together most effectively, both in the Pacific but also more broadly, uh, as you know, as as natural allies who have you know shared values, share histories, and a relationship which goes very deep uh, across all aspects of from economic to uh, to family ties to to geography and, and so on. Um, and and I think that. From a New Zealand perspective, there are certain many lateral groupings where where New Zealand sees itself as having a, a role to play and where it can play a role. Obviously, can't stretch itself uh, very uh, as you know, can't stretch itself thinly because, there, as I said before, there are resource constraints um, for for New Zealand. But in the Pacific, for instance, that's where New Zealand sees itself as being able to have uh, some of the. You know, not, I don't want to say the, certainly the, the loudest voice, but certainly where New Zealand can play a critical part of those of the architecture, um, and where New Zealand has a you know deep vested interest in both partnering with Australia, but also sort of anchoring its legitimacy and its influence and and, and so on. Do, do you get any sense, you know, obviously um, Australia only has two allies, the US uh, and New Zealand. We have a number of partners and, and New Zealand's allies, Australia. Do you get a sense of New Zealand feeling left out of some of these new arrangements in the Indo-Pacific, some of these new mini-laterals? Yeah, I do. I don't know if that's um, a common view, but I feel like we've lost a bit of ground I feel like we've really positioned ourselves as a small power with fellow small powers. Um, and I think Australia has exercised actually quite an impressive and active middle power diplomacy that's really, you know, aims for 10, it gets seven, it might lose three, but it's still sort of getting its voice heard. Um, so there's a, I would like to see New Zealand engage and, and be more outward looking uh, to really sort of confront our um, tendency to look inward. Uh, I think in trade we have been very active multilateralists and we've been very much part of international role in architecture building, but much less so in a defence and security setting. And so it would be quite good to, I mean, I think we're going to be forced to recalibrate as um political and security and defence and everything are increasingly overlapping anyway. Um, but, yes, I, I do think there's a sense that um, we are maybe more out of the picture than we ought to be. So, Anna, the National Defence Strategy, the New Zealand National Defence Strategy, talks about the strength of the alliance with Australia and, and how important that is to uh, New Zealand's security 
And you mentioned before how New Zealand and Australia are working together in the Pacific. Um, recently, there was the announcement of the uh, agreement between Australia and Tuvalu. Uh, how has that been viewed in New Zealand? Obviously, that's a, a bilateral agreement. Uh, and what is the perspective there? So, obviously, I can't speak from a New Zealand official um, position at all. I think there is... But what I can say broadly is that there is an appreciation for the challenges that Tuvalu faces with respect to climate change as an existential threat. Uh, there is an appreciation that the government of Tuvalu, that Tuvalu's leadership will be, that, that they are wanting to find solutions uh, for future, to secure uh, future generations. Um, there, broadly speaking too, there are, uh, certainly, uh, there has been you know, significant debate amongst the sort of the Pacific um, community and academic civil society uh, and and others uh, around whether or not Australia would have been better off uh, offering the special um, mobility pathway uh, without Article Four, which which uh, has has been an area of concern for for, for many people, um, and that's the article which refers to, uh, which effectively uh, provides Australia with veto over Tuvalu entering into uh, any type of agreements with other states or or entities, uh, and so there is there is concern about that. So there's appreciation of the existential challenges that Tuvalu faces as a consequence of climate change. Uh, and then there are some there there are concerns about about uh, that particular clause uh, around Australia having veto over uh, Tuvalu's decision making within the national security um, sphere. Susanna, I think it was an interesting one. I, I mean, I don't know whether it was another AUKUS moment where it was a surprise <laughs> on the region and on friends um, and the degree to which um, uh, partners such as New Zealand and other Pacific partners um, knew about the details of that arrangement. So once again, sort of form over substance. I think substantively it's really interesting to Australia, see Australia step up um, and provide that degree of connection and pathway for, um, say, Tuvalu migration to Australia, um, for information sharing and so on. Um, it shows Australia's commitment and it's prepared to put uh, its money where its mouth is. Um, does it bring others along with it is my question, I guess, is does our diplomacy... Um, help build regional cohesion and collective resilience or does it enhance those hairline or sort of worsen those hairline fractures that are already in the region? Thank you. Look, um, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in, in this podcast where we've talked about AUKUS and India and China and New Zealand perceptions and the Pacific it's been fantastic to have you today on the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much for having me.